Well, I guess, you know, if you were to ask uh, any novelist today, or perhaps a crime writer, they would say the same thing to you, that the opening words of any novel, or any book for that matter, it's got to be like a hook, hasn't it? It's got to be like a hook that draws you in to want to read the rest of that book. Possibly another little application could be maybe a doorway that... Those few words at the beginning of a, of a book or a story, let's say certainly a novel, that it's just inviting us to open that doorway and to go through and to see what lies ahead. In that day, you will say. That's how this first verse opens in Isaiah 12. In that day, that seemingly insignificant sentence comes right at the beginning of this beautiful, beautiful hymn and song of praise. And it's just like that hook, isn't it? It's like that hook or that doorway that invites us to look further as to why Isaiah said in that day. Well, when we read the first 11 chapters of Isaiah, we begin to see why Isaiah said that. Because the theme has been very possibly twofold, or if we want to be pedantic, we could go for threefold, but we'll stick with two. Firstly, Isaiah proclaiming God's absolute love and holiness. But because of God's abhorrence at man's sinfulness, at his nation's uh, rebellion, then secondly, what we see after that is God's amazing love. And we see that in three chapters, don't we? Chapter 7, chapter 9 and chapter 11. That one day God was going to come among his people in person and bring about his work of salvation and restitution. A work that will reach its conclusion when we get right to the end of Revelation. Revelation 21 on Mount Zion. When the dwelling of God will again be with man. And it's signifying that God's anger at man's sinfulness has been satisfied through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as people who've been cleansed through his blood, the day will become when you and I will be presented pure and holy as the beloved bride of Christ. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Well, the Bible tells us that even though God has showed his love to his nation, they continued to live in disobedience to him. So, like any good parent, any good parent that loves their children, God clearly needs to discipline this nation so that they wouldn't go chasing after idols, but would worship him, that they would love him and revere him and only him the one who's repeatedly shown his love to them. Chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. God says, I reared children, I brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. And then when we go into chapter 5, God likens them to a vineyard. And he says, what more could I have done? You can almost hear the anguish of a parent of a teenager, can't you? What more could I have done? When I looked for good grapes, why did it only yield bad? Well, if you're a parent, you know what those times are like. You know there's been times in your lives when you've needed to discipline your children. You didn't do it because you hated them. You did it because you loved them. 
And he wanted to ensure that when they grew up, they would grow up to love and respect God, as well as you and those around them. And your hopes and your prayers would be that in the long run, when they get a little bit older, when they come to their senses, that they realise that all you've ever want for them was the very best. That's true of all of us, isn't it, as parents? It's all we ever want for our children is the very best. And that's what God wanted for his people. And it's what he wants for you and I today. That's what he wants. Well, you know, God often spoke his heart through his prophets. And of course, Isaiah was one of such men. A man, a man that we see firstly back in chapter 6, who in the presence of a holy God, he realised that he was a sinner. He was realised that he was a man of unclean lips. But what do we read? He said, God touched Isaiah's lips with tongues of fire and cleansed him, and his guilt was taken from him. See, says God, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. But then when we move on into the next verse, we see how God is commissioning him. He's giving him that task. And it's a greater task than trying to deliver Brexit on the 31st of December. October. Sorry, what did I say? December. Oh, that's my birthday, isn't it? Sorry, that's what I was thinking. Sorry, forget that. <laughs> but of course, you know, the task that God gave Isaiah was a really awful task when you think about it because he was to speak to a rebellious people, to a rebellious nation who didn't want to listen to God. A people who, because of their repeated failure to obey him, God was going to send away because of their apostasy. Firstly, of course, we know that Israel was taken by the Assyrians and then later Jerusalem and Judah were carried off by Nebuchadnezzar and his men to Babylon. But then we come to chapter 11 and we see verse 10, that same sentence, in that day. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him. And his place of rest will be glorious. You know, I think this is a really beautiful picture of God through the Lord Jesus Christ calling you and I heavenwards. Jesus is pictured here in a sort of military capacity, rather like a signaller in olden times, in ancient times, before radios, before communications. He would have waved a banner on a hillside. And that would have signified and called people to a place of safety, a place of security. Well, on Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ stands as a banner. And he's calling us heavenwards. Every one of us with repentant hearts will to turn to him for their salvation. Jesus says this, he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And that's reinforced in chapter 11 by what Isaiah says next. He says, in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. Just as the Lord God did the first time through Moses when he led the people out of captivity in Egypt, God was going to do the same again. So we can see when we come to chapter 12, why Isaiah says that in that day, you will say. 
Well, what we see in chapter 12, especially the first two verses, is a very personal response to what God's done. And then we go into uh, verses 4 to 6, and we see that there's a call there to proclaim all that God has done by us, his church. So it's a corporate proclamation of God. And of course, sitting in the middle of those four verses, verse 3, is a reminder, and again, this is a lovely, lovely picture, That God's blessings are like a deep well. Just imagine that in a a land that's parched with heat. Yesterday people were taking on water left, right and centre. And what we see in this picture is God's well of blessing is inexhaustible. Because God is inexhaustible. So look with me at verses 1 and 2. Because we see there a personal response In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you've comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. Well, I want to ask you a question tonight, and I'd like you to think about it and answer it in your minds, in your hearts, honestly. You don't have to shout it out. But what was your intention tonight in coming to church? What was the intention for you coming to church tonight? Have a think about it for a moment. Was it particularly to hear me, to hear the word of God open, to hear these lovely people singing? To have fellowship with one another? Well, yes, all of those things. But I believe the primary aim of us coming to church tonight was to praise God. That's why we come here tonight. We've come to praise God. To worship him. We've come to worship him, as Richard said earlier, as the holy, omnipotent God that he is. The creator of the heavens and the earth. And all that's in the earth. Well, those things alone should inspire our hearts to want to come and worship and praise God from our very, very hearts. But we see in the second part of verse 1 the real reason why Isaiah says, I will praise you, Lord. And it's there. Because God's anger has been turned away from us. Well, you know, before we were each washed clean through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, before a holy, righteous God, we were exactly as the Bible says we were, guilty of sin. Guilty of forsaking God. Guilty of going our way. Wanting things our way. Wanting us to be on the throne of our lives rather than God. And although God loves us, and we must never forget that, but he does love us. What he cannot do is look on our sinfulness and allow it to go unpunished. In fact, it angers him. Why? Because God knows that sin is what's holding you and I captive to this world today. To all the evil and godless behaviour we see. On the news this morning was the awful, awful uh, story, a news report, of a young woman last night who was stabbed in London. She died. The paramedics had to deliver her baby. No idea how the baby is. I haven't heard the news to continue today. But this is what's happening in our world. We pray tonight for all of the things that are not right in our world. And that's all as a result of 
mankind's sin. And even creation, as we saw this morning back at the, at the Free Church, when we look at Romans 8, all of creation is suffering under the effects of sin. Sin has destroyed the intimate relationship that God wants us to have with him, intended for us to have with him, right back in the Garden of Eden when he created Adam. Adam walked with him in the call of the day. What a beautiful picture of God and man in perfect fellowship together. But then comes sin. And of course, sin has also marred God's image in you and I. So it's not always clear within us that we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And sin, as the Bible tells us, has only one outcome. Paul tells us in Romans, doesn't he? The wages of sin are death. Eternal separation from Christ. You know, there's been several occasions in the preceding chapters of Isaiah where despite the nation's... um, seemingly good intentions if you like to return to God we read these awful words and when you go to chapter 9 they're there three times over just the same words yet for all of this his anger is not turned away his hand is still upraised that's an awful thing to contemplate isn't it it's a most awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God that's what the bible says And you know what saddens me as a Christian, it was kind of reflected in my prayer earlier, is that for many today, they really could not give a darn, if that's not using a swear word, and forgive me if it is, they couldn't care that God's hand is upraised against them. They just could not care. His anger towards their sinfulness hasn't yet been turned away. Even though many might think they're good, moral, upright people. And sadly, you know, have to say there are some regular church attenders who think like that as well. I'm all right, I'm good, I'm good, moral, I don't hurt anybody. But of course it's only when we come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit does God open our eyes to the truth. That before a holy, righteous God, just as we once were, many today, are in fact sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God. And what's worse, they can do nothing about it in their own strength, even though they might try. We cannot change other than to cry out for mercy. I love this picture over here, come Holy Spirit, change me. And the picture speaks for itself. Various degrees of humbling ourselves before God. I was struck with that when I walked into the church tonight. We need to cry out in mercy for God to rescue us from sin. And we need to be praying that, and crying out to God that God would rescue those around us from sin. Because you see, it's only... When we do that, as Isaiah says here, can we know with confidence that God has comforted us? That's what we see there. Your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Well, let me ask us this truth tonight. Has God's anger been turned away from us? Are we comforted in the knowledge that through Christ our sins have been forgiven? Or are we perhaps still fearful that God's hand is still upraised against us. His anger yet to be subsided. His anger yet to be satisfied. 
Well, of course, we can only know that for sure, that God's anger has been turned away from us. When, like Isaiah, we come before the Lord, verse 2, and we make that good confession. Surely God is my salvation. God is my salvation. What does the Apostle Peter say in Acts 4 when he was hauled before the Sanhedrin? And they just were amazed at these Galilean fishermen. Because Peter says this, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Notice that, by which we must be saved. Well, if God is our salvation, as I pray he is, then surely it behoves us to trust him and not be afraid. Because as we see there in verses 2 and 3, the Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation with joy. When we get to verse 3, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You know, what's so wonderful today is that we have that absolute assurance that our sins have been forgiven. Keith and I get together with the guys up the road occasionally for a fraternal, and I think it was at the last meeting, if I remember rightly, Keith, that James Clark said, brethren, and he always calls us brethren, I feel like an old man when he says that. (coughs) Don't tell him that, will you? But he said, brethren, we, we need to preach more from the pulpit the assurance of sins forgiven. If we belong to Christ, we need to preach the assurance of our sins being forgiven. And when we do that, then it's, it's liberating, isn't it? And then we can come with joy. We can come with joy and we can draw on all of the blessings the Lord wants to give us. All those blessings we see there in verse 3. With joy, joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Well, let me read some verses from John's Gospel. And I'm going to start in reverse order for no particular reason other than that it just seems the right thing to do. John 7. And this is verses 37 to 39. On the last and the great day of the feast, the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And then we go to to John chapter 4 and that wonderful passage where Jesus is talking to this rather largest lady the lady of Samaria oh it's just a waste of time isn't it (laughs) sorry if you've ever met a guy called Derek Hayman that was one of Derek's so I'm not going to take it for that what he says here coming back to being serious for a minute is this, this is verse, chapter 4, 13 and 14. Jesus answered this lady, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will, be, will come in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Well, yesterday was a pretty good reminder of how much we need water on a hot day like yesterday. But just imagine you lived in a land where water was at an absolute premium. And then all of a sudden, the water's plentiful. Oh, you'd be jumping up and down rejoicing. You haven't got to travel miles to go and get some brackish water and bring it back and boil it. Well, you know, when we look at this verse... With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It's just another little echo of what we saw earlier with Isaiah going back into the Exodus. This time he's talking about the abundance of life-giving water that God blessed his nation with during their 40 years of wandering in the desert. But Isaiah's also looking forward here to God's future act of saving grace through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to that wonderful invitation that we've just read in both John 4 and John 7 to come and to receive to receive the very life-giving water that only Jesus can give to all who believe life-giving water that should be bubbling up in us to eternal life the life-giving Holy Spirit that marks us out as people belonging to God In other words, the church. And that leads us into the next little bit of this passage from Isaiah 12. Just look with me at verses 4 through to 6. In that day, again you see we see those words. You will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he's done. And proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. What we see in these last couple of verses, where the first verses were singular, were personal praise, Now we come to corporate praise because it's gone to the language that is now plural. You will say. So we're called, finally, to be a people called to be faithful witnesses. Because we're men and women who've been brought out of the darkness of sin and set free to walk in the wonderful light of Christ. Just as God set his nation free from the darkness of oppression... It's interesting, when you go back into the Old Testament, into Exodus, and you see what Moses said to Pharaoh. He said, let my people go. But then what else did he say? Let my people go that they may worship me. That's what Moses said, speaking on behalf of God. And you and I have been set free. We've been set free from sin. And we've been set free to praise God, to worship him. Because Jesus has saved us. But he's also saved us corporately as the church. David was praying right at the beginning when we were in the side room about praying for individuals, individuals to come to Christ. But collectively, when individuals come to Christ, we come together as a church, don't we? We're to worship God much as we're doing tonight by singing hymns and songs that tell of all the glorious things he's done. But we're also called, through these verses here, to be God's witnesses outside of the church to a world that's in a hopeless mess. Our brother at the front prayed some excellent prayers tonight, reminding us of the mess that this world's in. 
Well, surely if we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we know him as our personal saviour, shouldn't our prayers be to see men and women being saved? Shouldn't our prayers be to see God raining down on us again, his life-giving spirit, not only to revive our churches and revive our hearts, but to convict this unbelieving, unbelieving world of its sin and its need for Jesus? You know, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we've been saved by God, not by good works, but for good works. The works that God has set each and every one of us apart to do. Your work is different to my work. We've each got a different role to play, haven't we? But the bottom line is, in all of those good works, we're to proclaim Christ. We're to proclaim him by making him known to the nations, and in doing so, exalting God's holy name, which is exactly what Isaiah says here. Well, over the last couple of months at the Free Church, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we've been thinking, of what are the indicatives of our faith as Christians? And Paul, when we got to chapter 3, Paul sort of highlights for us, he said, to have died with Christ and as believers to have been raised to life with him. Those are the indicatives. But then, of course, we come to what are called the imperatives. In other words, what we need to do as God's people to demonstrate that we're born again and that we actually love him and we're in fellowship with one another. Because being Christians isn't something that we can just sit back and think, well, that's it, good, I'm a Christian now. It's not a passive thing. We're called to action. In fact, Jesus actually commands us if you go to Matthew 28, we're commanded to go. We're commanded to go and share the gospel. And we see the imperatives as God's people here in these verses in, in verse 6. Because Isaiah says, shout aloud. Sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Well, just as God restored his nation from exile, from captivity in Assyria and Babylon, God's promise was for his chosen one to rescue all of mankind from an even greater captivity, to release us through his death and resurrection from captivity to sin and to death. And as born-again believers, you and I tonight... We can look forward to that time when Jesus will come again in glory. Because on that day, as we see in Revelation 21, God will restore the holy city of Zion. And we read those wonderful words that remind us that God's anger about our sins has been met in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned them earlier. Now the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be their God. So on that day, as God's people, people God, who God is no longer angry with, because through Christ his anger has been turned aside from us and has been laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I will be part of that great picture that the Apostle John had that we read in, in Revelation 7, where there were so many people from different tribes, different countries, different nationalities, and it was so many that John said, I can't count them. 
and we'll be among them. We'll be among them. As Isaiah says here, we'll be worshipping God together as his people. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. And you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid.